Welcome to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of January 28th, 2024, as always from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. <clears throat> but uh, we are once again deviating from the horrific events in Gaza and Ukraine and Burma, etc., to delve into a little deep history on this rant, including actually uh, some local New York City history. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to do a little tourism in my hometown of Queens, New York, particularly the neighborhood of Flushing. Today, New York City's biggest Chinatown, bigger than the older and more famous one here in Manhattan, where I today live, and uh, also home to uh, some important colonial-era buildings with some very important and instructive history behind them, including the Flushing Quaker Meeting House, right next door to the Taiwanese Community Center, one of the oldest continuously used houses of worship in the United States, established in 1694. There might be a Catholic church in New Mexico, which is older, but is definitely among the oldest houses of worship in the United States. And um, since the uprising of 2020, it has had a Black Lives Matter banner hanging from its outer wall facing Northern Boulevard. But I'd been inside the Quaker Meeting House before. This time, I took a tour, for the first time in my life, of the Bound House, a few blocks away on Bound Street, B-O-W-N-E, which actually hosted the first Quaker meetings in Flushing before the Meeting House was built and was involved in a comparatively little-known early struggle for religious freedom. Really was the, the focal point of that struggle. So today, of course, Flushing is a neighborhood in the borough of Queens in the city of New York. But back in the 1660s, when the Bound House was built, Flushing was a rural village inhabited by English, but within the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam, which was actually run, the Dutch colony was actually run as a mercantilist enterprise by the Dutch West India Company, and had its seat in what is today Manhattan's financial district, a walled compound to keep out the Lenape Indians, with the wall at, you guessed it, Wall Street, hence the name. And Flushing, at this time, had a considerable community of Quakers, who had fled persecution of their then-new religion in England, only to find that they would also face persecution at the hands of the Dutch. In 1656, the governor of New Amsterdam, Peter Stuyvesant, who was a reactionary jerk, 
passed an ordinance barring the practice in the colony of any religion other than the Dutch Reformed Church, which was Calvinist in its orientation, and especially instating intolerance of the Quakers, or Religious Society of Friends, as they are more formally known, with penalties imposed for hosting a Quaker meeting, as they call their services, which are more marked by silent meditation than preaching. But the town fathers of Flushing were like, nah, this is not how we roll. Religious freedom is actually written into our town charter. So in 1657, they penned a remonstrance that they sent to Peter Stuyvesant expressing their defiance of his policy. Remonstrance seems to be basically a fancy and old-fashioned word for protest, more or less, but I think it also has implications of scolding or lecturing. And the flushing remonstrance, as it was called, was really a revolutionary document for its day, defending not only the rights of Quakers, but even stating that, quote, the law of love, peace, and liberty extends to Jews, Turks, and Egyptians, as they also are considered sons of Adam, end quote. That is, Jews and Muslims in 1657. That was seriously ahead of its time. But the policy did not change. Peter Stuyvesant's policy did not change. And in 1662, John Bown, master of the recently built Bown House, was arrested by Dutch authorities for hosting Quaker meetings in his house. He was imprisoned and, after some kind of summary trial, ordered banished from the territory of New Amsterdam. But Bown didn't take it lying down. He actually went to the Netherlands, crossed the ocean and went to the Netherlands, the Dutch Republic, as it then was, having recently won its independence from the Spanish Empire in the Thirty Years' War, to plead his case. He appealed his conviction to the Dutch West India Company, and he convinced them. His conviction was overturned, and the West India Company wrote to New Amsterdam. And they were like, hey, Peter Stuy, just relax. Let the Quakers do their thing. There's no skin off your back. Chill out, dude. So the Quakers were able to boogie in public again, and John Bowne returned to Flushing, actually arriving in 1664, just as New Amsterdam was being turned over to the English anyway and became New York. In 1672, George Fox, founder of the Quaker movement, visited Flushing. And the place where he preached is today called the Fox Oaks on Bound Street. The Oaks are long gone, but there is a stone monument there. And the Flushing Remonstrance is today considered an important precursor to the First Amendment, which protects my rights to be an atheist, 
all right, I would not be afforded, at least not to boogie in public as an atheist, in many other countries around the world, something American atheists are prone to forget. And, all right, I might not have here in the U.S. in the years to come, depending on how deeply this country goes into Christian fascism if El Pendejo Trump regains the White House. More about this shortly. But to continue with the history, in the usual contradiction, this early avatar of religious freedom, John Bowne, also owned a small number, at least, of enslaved Africans. But in the late 18th century, by which time Quaker thinking on this matter had evolved, the Bowne family, John Bowne's descendants still living at the house, were involved in the Manumission Society, the earliest abolitionist effort in the U.S. And later, in the 1840s, the Bowne House served as a stop on the Underground Railroad. And later still, Flushing became one of the first communities of free African Americans in the United States, even before emancipation. And it's interesting that I happen to have this experience of touring the Bound House and familiarize myself with this history just after my rant of two weeks ago, in which I reviewed the book Resistance to Christianity, a chronological encyclopedia of heresy from the beginning to the 18th century by the French radical thinker Raoul Vanagem, actually Belgian by birth, translated from the French by Bill Brown and newly released by an imprint called Eris Books, distributed through Columbia University Press. And as we discussed two weeks ago, Vanagem traces this chronology from the heresies of the ancient and medieval periods, especially those in the Gnostic tradition that rejected the church and worldly authority generally on the grounds that the material world was created and ruled not by a benevolent god, but by a malevolent demiurge or cosmic architect, and therefore all worldly institutions were inherently evil, including the Church of Rome. And even sometimes saw the god of the Christians, the god that the Christians were worshipping, as the demiurge, basically as the devil. And therefore, this tradition attracted the oppressed and disaffected. But um, these early heresies gradually evolved into the less obscurantist and often more millennialist heresies that began to prefigure the Protestant Reformation which can itself be seen as a heresy that succeeded. A key episode was the German Peasants' War of 1524, which had a spiritual and millennial aspect in the person of the revolutionary priest Thomas Munzer, a contemporary of Martin Luther, who disavowed him and saw him as far too radical. And then the 
English Civil War of 1642 to 1651, and particularly the most radical period after they beheaded the king in 1649. Yeah, the English did it a century and a half before the French, little known fact. And this period sees famously the diggers, who in 1649 at St. George's Hill pulled off what the historian George Woodcock called the world's first anarchist direct action, reclaiming land from the aristocracy for their collective farm with a vision of the earth as a common treasury for all. And also the even more radical ranters who were fiery mystical anarchists, you might say, antinomians, as they were later called, who utterly rejected all worldly authority and Christian morality. Both the Puritans and the Quakers, who came to America and had a big influence here, also came out of this same ferment. The Quakers, as we have noted, would be deeply involved in abolitionism and later struggles for social justice here on our side of the Atlantic, especially war resistance due to their pacifism, although it should be noted that back in George Fox's day, they were much more fiery and millenarian than the more quietist Quakers that we know today. And the more militant abolitionism of the armed insurrectionist John Brown in the 1850s of Harper's Ferry and Bleeding Kansas fame was steeped in Puritan millenarianism. And there was even a stamp of this a century later in the Baptist and pacifist Martin Luther King Jr., seen in his famous invocation of the Old Testament, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And yet, as I noted at the end of my review of Vanagen's book two weeks ago, here we are today, in 2024, with evangelical Protestantism, especially white evangelical Protestantism, overwhelmingly a force of deep reaction in this country and poised, if Donald Trump is to regain the White House this November, a possibility by no means to be dismissed, to really instate a kind of handmaid's tale situation in this country. This is really an example of the Hegelian paradoxical interpenetration of opposites, isn't it? How did we get here? That's what I've been pondering in recent days. And what I've kind of come up with is uh, the first turning point, I think, was in the late 19th century with the rise of biblical literalism in reaction against the rise of science a contradiction seen in the early fundamentalist politician, William Jennings Bryan, who was a fighter for the little guy and on the right side 
on the question of the gold standard, that is, for abolishing it, but on the wrong side in the Scopes trial, that is, against the teaching of evolution in the schools. An obvious echo of battles still going on today, a century later. Then you add the more formal establishment of fundamentalism in the 1920s, and then, critically, the weaponizing of the issue of abortion by the Republican Party after Roe versus Wade in the 1970s, and then the big turning point of 1980 with the Reagan Revolution, concomitant with the founding of the Moral Majority, and the pact between the GOP and Protestant fundamentalism with the fundies abandoning their remnant economic populism, the close ranks with neoliberalism and Reaganomics as the price of embrace of their cultural conservative agenda. And this pact persists to this day, even as the GOP is really going over the edge into outright fascism. Another example of the paradoxical unity of opposites, as it was the GOP was the anti-slavery party back in the day of, uh, you know, Lincoln and Thaddeus Stevens, but is now the party of open racism and reaction. Ralph Reed, founder of the Christian Coalition, long a pillar of that pact, is now walking a new book entitled For God and Country, The Christian Case for Trump. And did you see this video that um, Trump posted to his Truth Social platform entitled God Made Trump, literally portraying this shithead, pardon my French, as a savior sent by God. And in the footage of the great moments in his presidency, which are being glorified, it actually shows that famous incident in which Trump literally pushed the Montenegrin prime minister out of his way at the NATO summit in 2017 a total entitled ugly American asshole move. And this is what is being glorified in the name of Christianity. This uh, video was produced by a uh, propaganda outfit calling itself the Daily Meme Team. I checked out their website. Amazingly, proudly ugly stuff. They also have a video on their site poking fun at Fannie Willis, the uh, district attorney of uh, Fulton County, Georgia, who is prosecuting Trump for election interference. And it is the most blatant, undisguised, sophomoric racism that I have ever seen. I mean, we're all used to coded racism in American political discourse. There is nothing coded about this. It is balls-out, undisguised, unapologetic, racist caricature. You really have to see it to believe it. And the wannabe POTUS, Donald Trump, 
is sharing crap from this group. The man who could be in the Oval Office a year from now. And did you happen to hear, at this very moment, there is a trucker convoy of so-called Christian patriots, quote-unquote, headed to the uh, Texas border with Mexico to back up the Texan government in its current showdown with the feds over border control under the slogan, Take Our Border Back. And they are calling themselves God's Army. And in my last rant two weeks ago about this stuff, I warned that under a restored Trump regime, the evangelical Protestants could play the same kind of role that their reactionary Catholic counterparts did in the clerical fascist regimes of Francisco Franco in Spain, Antipavlovich in Croatia, and to an extent, Benito Mussolini in Italy, under all of which gains for women and free thinkers and secularists were dramatically overturned. Well, now it occurs to me that there is a contemporary example of a uh, clerical fascist regime in a very powerful country today that is already in fairly explicit alliance with the evangelical right in this country. I am speaking, if it isn't obvious, about Putin's Russia. Did you happen to notice that last year, Congress formally took over organizing the National Prayer Breakfast, which every president since Eisenhower has attended, because the group that ran it, the Fellowship Foundation, was found to have become too politicized and too close to far-right figures, and particularly to Russians, most prominently including Maria Butina, the right-wing activist who was indicted by the Justice Department as a Russian operative, copped the plea to avoid a lengthy prison term, went back to Russia, and is now serving in Russia's parliament, the Duma, with Putin's ruling United Russia Party, which, by the way, is rapidly putting a clerical fascist order in place in the Russian Federation, with the Russian Orthodox Church restored to its role as pillar of power that it enjoyed under the czars. This pact was really cemented when Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church endorsed Vladimir Putin's return to the presidency in 2012, and he's grown closer and closer to Putin since then, and is today a key propagandist for Putin's Ukraine war. In 2020, Putin and his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, joined Patriarch Kirill to inaugurate the Cathedral of the Armed Forces, this brand new and giant cathedral in the old, you know, onion-domed classical Russian style just outside Moscow. And everything is portrayed in Kirill's world as Russian traditional values standing up to godless Western liberalism. Hence, the convergence with MAGA 
and Protestant evangelicalism in the United States. And hence also the notion in some very misguided sectors of the political left in the United States that Trump would be the less dangerous president because he would be less likely to get us into a war with Russia. But despite his love affair with Putin, this blustering nutjob taking power in a world at war, which the world now is, obviously holds unprecedented risk of escalation to the unthinkable. I utterly reject this perverse notion that Trump is a peacenik. And here's where we get to the really ominous part. If you uh, go back to the book of Revelations that all the evangelicals are so obsessed with, what it was all really about for John of Patmos, writing way back in the first century, was the fall of Rome. The Babylon, referred to in Revelations, is actually a metaphor for Rome. Looking back to the oppressor and occupier of the Hebrew people centuries earlier to provide vocabulary for what was, for him, John the Revelator, the current oppressor. Then we can jump forward a millennium and a half, and the expectation of the millennium seen in the English Civil War period was conceived as overthrow of the aristocracy and lords of property, again, dressing itself up in the garb and imagery of struggles of centuries past, in exactly the manner described by Marx in the 18th Brumaire. But now, jumping forward another 400 years, in the current biblical literalist conception, the apocalypse of Revelations is seen as a literal rain of fire and brimstone, which we now have the power to bring about through our own weapons technology. So the notion of believers in imminent literal apocalypse getting anywhere near the U.S. nuclear arsenal is obviously utterly terrifying. So uh, we have to figure out how we're going to respond to this extremely dangerous moment for the U.S. and the world. And I have to say that as an atheist, I recognize that atheism isn't going to be enough. It's not going to be sufficient. The United States being what it is, resistance to the MAGA variety of clerical fascism is going to have to come, in part at least, from within organized Christianity, or perhaps unorganized Christianity, notwithstanding the title of Vanagon's book, Resistance to Christianity. Hopefully, the contradiction will become too blatant for some, even within the evangelical ranks, of rallying around the obviously, utterly, irreligious Trump 
in the name of religion. I must point out Russell Moore, formerly a top official of the Southern Baptist Convention, and now the editor of um, Christianity Today magazine, who has written a new book entitled Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America, warning that evangelicalism is becoming the antithesis of everything it supposedly stands for by embracing MAGA. Now, I'm sure that Russell Moore and myself would disagree on a very great deal, very strongly, including some fundamentally important stuff. But I have to give him creds for publicly rejecting MAGA. That's a sign of hope. There are also pastors in the black church who are keeping the MLK tradition alive, such as the Reverend William Barber of the Disciples of Christ denomination in North Carolina, who led the Moral Mondays campaign in that state against the overturn of civil rights legislation and the erecting of new barriers to voting rights and the imposition of restrictions to abortion rights. So that's interesting and hopeful, as is the Black Lives Matter banner hanging from the Quaker Meeting House in Flushing, a reminder that there are other currents within the Christian tradition, broadly defined, than its most reactionary exponent, which is now preparing a bid for total power. Some shout-outs to a couple of friends of mine in the San Francisco Bay Area. One is my good buddy and fellow seeker of many years, longtime East Bay anarchist activist and organic intellectual, Louis Finzel, whose own readings and rantings and research into the stuff I've been discussing has provided me some important pointers over the years. And Lily Xiang Li, a really heroic human rights activist exiled from her native China and now living in San Francisco, who passed through New York two weeks ago on her way to a conference in D.C. on nonviolent resistance to the dictatorship in China and was staying in Flushing and gave me the opportunity and inspiration to uh, go out there and tour the Bound House. And Lily happens to be, unlike me, a Christian, which does give me some faith in the possibilities for a liberatory Christianity. And God knows we're going to need it. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.